0: Joseph Smith, the 19th century American prophet who founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, can at times be considered an elusive historical figure. There are many forces that drove this man, along with the thousands of individuals who followed him, to create a flourishing religious movement that not only influenced minds, but fostered communities, built cities, and engaged in politics. The Mormons drastically influenced American culture and they continue to impact the United States and the world in impressive ways. Join us for the special series on Mormonism for the New Books Network as we talk with the managing historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Dr. Matthew C. Godfrey, about a recently released Documents volume. The topics addressed in these documents include the practical and spiritual building up of Nauvoo, Illinois, a Mormon city along the Mississippi River, the struggle to obtain redress for Mormon property and lives lost in Missouri, the missionary efforts of the Church's Quorum of Twelve Apostles in England, and the introduction of new teachings and doctrines, including Baptism for the Dead. This is a discussion you do not want to miss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new special series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Matthew C. Godfrey, And he'll be talking with us about a recently released volume of the Joseph Smith Papers, Documents, Volume 7, and it covers between September 1839 through January 1841. Matthew C. Godfrey is a general editor and the managing historian of the Joseph Smith Papers. He holds a Ph.D. in American and Public History from Washington State University. Before joining the project, he was president of Historical Research Associates, a historical and archaeological consulting firm headquartered in Missoula, Montana. He is the author of Religion, Politics, and Sugar, the Mormon Church, the Federal Government, and the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company, 1907-1921 which actually was a co-winner of the Mormon History Association Smith Pettit Award for Best First Book. It's a great book. And he's also the co-editor of a soon-to-be-released book, The Earth Shall Appear as the Garden of Eden, Essays in Mormon Environmental History, which will be published by the University of Utah Press in 2019. I've heard some pretty uh, interesting buzz about that book as well. Welcome. Uh, Is it okay if I call you Matt?
1: You bet. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for having me on. Awesome.
0: Thank you for coming. As far as I know, I mean, within the realm of Mormon studies and American religion, I do have to say, and I'll kind of uh, toot your horn a little bit, Matt, you're pretty much a rock star, especially being the managing uh, historian for the Joseph Smith Papers. So thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, happy to do it.
0: (laughs) Thanks. So to start off, you know, for a lot of our listeners that are probably tuning in right now, they might know what the Joseph Smith Papers project is. But for those who don't, um, Can you explain what actually is the Joseph Smith Papers Project?
1: Sure. So the Joseph Smith Papers Project, we're a documentary editing project uh, that's been going on for several years now. Uh, We are patterned after the Founding Fathers documentary editing projects um, that have been going on for decades. Um, So you have the papers of Thomas Jefferson that Princeton University has been publishing since the 1940s. You have the papers of George Washington at the University of Virginia, uh, the papers of Benjamin Franklin at Yale University. And so we're trying to do the same thing with Joseph Smith's papers as these projects have done with these founding fathers, where uh, we're trying to publish a comprehensive edition of Joseph Smith's papers, uh, either in print or online, Um, And so, you know, sometimes when I say that, people wonder, well, you know, what exactly is a Joseph Smith document? What's a Joseph Smith paper? And just kind of a simple way to think about it is that um, a Joseph Smith document is anything that he created himself. So a letter that uh, he wrote or had written, a journal that he kept, uh, something like that, or anything that he owned. So a letter that was sent to him, addressed to him we would consider a Joseph Smith paper as well. And as I mentioned, we're trying to publish all of these documents, um, either in print. We have a a robust uh, series um, where we published numerous volumes up to this point and still have several more to publish. Uh, But we also have a website, josephsmithpapers.org, where all of the documents will be available on the website. With images and transcripts of the documents. And so it's a way that we're trying to get Joseph Smith's papers more accessible to researchers. Um, You know, I I know David McCullough, before the author of 1776, has said that he couldn't have written that book without the papers of George Washington. And we hope that when scholars are dealing with uh, early Latter day Saint history, uh, the early history of Joseph Smith, that our volumes, our documents that we're publishing will be just as helpful to them as the George Washington papers were for David McCullough. Um, So that's really what what we're trying to do, uh, just to publish a comprehensive edition of Joseph Smith's papers.
0: That's awesome. That's really brilliant. And to uh, to be to, uh, Just to kind of lend credit to what you're doing, I've heard several authors say that they couldn't have written their recently released books without the Joseph Smith Papers. There was a biography just published about W.W. Phelps and Bruce Van Orden. I mean, in several of his interviews, he's actually said, I'm so glad I waited because he wanted to write the book 10 years earlier. And he said, I'm so glad I waited for the Joseph Smith Papers project to come out because my book was so much better because of it. So. I mean, what you all are doing is a stellar job
1: well thank you yeah we we just think it's really important to get these documents out there so historians can use them uh, so that they're accessible for them.
0: That's great, so we obviously see that this this is a huge project, the breadth and scope of it is is massive um so we can definitely see the significance of that, but specifically with Joseph Smith and his papers what does he bring to the fields of obviously Mormon studies, but in a broader field of American religion and just American history in general? For people who study Mormon history, we definitely can see that they're going to be interested in Joseph Smith because he's the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But why would other historians and especially historians of American religion be interested in why should they be interested in these papers?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think for one thing, you know, Joseph Smith was the founder of a religious tradition founded in the United States that has had, you know, lasting uh, significance uh, throughout American history. Um, And just, you know, by virtue of his being the leader of this movement, the founder of the movement, I think that uh, has significance for people studying Uh, the rise of American religious traditions in the 19th century. I also think that a lot of what um, Joseph Smith dealt with in his life, um, you know, living, he establishes a church in 1830. He's killed in 1844. So that's a 14-year period. Um, But this is right, you know, in the middle of Jacksonian America, um, where you have issues going on with the rights of religious minorities in the United States. Um, you know, the Latter-day Saints are very much affected by that. Joseph is affected by that as, you know, when the Saints are uh, kicked out of Missouri in 1838 and 1839 under the threat of extermination um, by the governor of Missouri. And Joseph, you know, tries to get redress for the Saints being expelled from their land, from being forced to move, and he's unable to really uh, get any redress from the state of Missouri itself or from the federal government. There's really no politician, no branch of government that's willing to help him. And so I think when you're looking at the issue of the protection of religious beliefs and religious minorities during this time frame, you know, the Latter-day Saint movement is a great one to look at um, just because there's so much that um, touches on that with, with Joseph Smith. Um, I also think as well that, you know, Joseph was a very charismatic person. Uh, There was a lot to his life. He builds the city in Nauvoo that, you know, at the time period was uh, one of the largest cities in Illinois. Um, He's very prominent uh, on the religious landscape, you know, from 1830 to 1844. And so I think for all of these reasons, um, he's an important figure for American religious historians to study. Um, And I think there's a lot that they can glean um, about the state of religion in America in the early 19th century in the Jacksonian era by looking at Joseph Smith uh, and the Mormons.
0: That's awesome. And it sounds like you basically set the stage for this documents volume. I mean, it's it's right in the middle of Jacksonian America. It's during Martin Van Buren's presidency. Uh, there's a lot of sweet little nuggets in this documents volume. I mean, you get to see the Mormon delegation to go visit Martin Van Buren and Congress to see if they can get uh, redress and reparations for their expulsion from Missouri. The, the, the apostles are going overseas to several places, mainly England, and they're doing major proselytizing. Um, Joseph Smith is introducing brand new doctrines. He's, he's saying that they want to build a temple, Nauvoo. He's introducing baptism in for the dead for the first time as a, as, a, as a major tenant of the Mormon faith. I mean, there's a lot packed in this document's volume.
1: Yeah, there, there really is. It's a, it's a very eventful uh, volume. And it's kind of interesting to me because this volume covers um, this early period of the beginnings of building up what will become the city of Nauvoo. And again, Nauvoo really is, it's a prominent city in Illinois uh, in the early 1840s. But when the Latter day Saints first moved there in the summer of 1839, uh, it's basically a swamp where very few people live. And so they take the city. Um, or they take this area, this swampy area in 1839, and build it up into this great city and, in a matter of just a, a few years. And so this volume opens up uh, in September of 1839, so just a couple of months after um, the Saints had moved to uh, what was known as Commerce, Illinois at the time. What they would rename uh, Commerce as Nauvoo. And this is, again, just right after they've been uh, kicked out of the state of Missouri. Um, they've lost everything. The church is poor. Joseph um, Smith and the other church leaders have to figure out, you know, where are the saints going to settle? Do we even have everyone gather in one area like we did in Missouri? Um, and if so, how are we going to get land for people to settle on? And so you really see in this volume kind of the uh, logistical um nightmare that it is almost for the saints to be trying to build up this community. Uh, Joseph and the other church leaders go into the, it, just this huge amount of debt uh, so that they can have land uh, to sell to church members who are coming to the commerce area. They go into debt for about $150,000, which is just an astronomical sum for the time. And so, you know, you, you have the, these issues of Joseph being greatly in debt. uh, They're trying to uh, build the necessary infrastructure for the city. Like you mentioned, uh, Joseph has sent some of the major church leaders, uh, the 12 apostles in the church over to England, where they're proselytizing and hundreds, if not thousands of people are converting in England and then they're uh, moving to Nauvoo. So there's this huge influx of people and Joseph's trying to deal with you know, how do we uh, get these people settled and integrated into this community? Uh, you also have in documents, volume seven, um, the Saints getting an act that incorporates the city of Nauvoo that is passed by the Illinois legislature. Um, and so it's really just kind of this beginning period where, you know, people might look at this period from 1839 to, eight, to January of 1841 and think, ah there's probably not a whole lot going on in this period. Um, 1842. You know, seems a lot more eventful, um, you know, when plural marriage kind of, kind of comes to the foreground. But there's a lot that goes on um, in the period leading up to 1842 that this volume covers. And so I think it really is a volume that is important uh, for historians studying Nauvoo and, again, kind of studying this more general uh, American religious landscape.
0: Wow. That's fascinating, Matt. I have to say, just reading this document's volume, it reads – I mean, it's a a document's volume, right? You don't really expect it to read like an actual history book. But the historical introductions are just so good and they're so detailed. And while you're reading the actual document, you just can't help but dive into the footnotes because the footnotes are just so detailed. And it really reads like a dramatic thriller, even though it's a documents volume. It's really good. All the tensions that you're pointing out, you really, all of the editors that were a part of this volume, you all did a fantastic job. It's it's a beautiful work, and it really brings out the tension and the dramatic and the politics of of the the time and the 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 tension between the politics and the religion and everything that's everything that's happening with westward migration. It's it's fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoy it that way. Sometimes when we have people review our volumes before they're published, they tell us how dull they are. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's very nice to have someone say that they uh, really enjoyed reading it. Um, but that's, that's kind of the nature of the beast because, you know, as you mentioned, these aren't meant necessarily to be read to, you know, from the front cover to the back cover. Um, they're really meant to be reference volumes. And so when we're writing, uh, you know, each document has its own historical introduction and we write these introductions to kind of place the document in its historical context. So we're trying to answer why was the document written? Um, How was it created? How was it transmitted? How did people receive what was in the document itself? Um, And then we annotate provide these footnotes throughout the document so that a reader has all the necessary background information that they need to really understand the document. And so we do try to be, you know fairly detailed because we do want, you know someone could just flip open this volume to a random document, but then by reading the historical introduction by reading the footnotes, they could automatically understand what's going on uh, in the church at this time in Joseph Smith's life. Um, why is this document important? What's significant about it? Um, and so that's really what our goal is in writing these, these introductions and, and this annotation.
0: That's great. That's brilliant stuff. So you had talked about this and I want to tease it out a little bit out of you just because I, I just find this fascinating. Nauvoo geographically and politically. It seems to be really important for the Latter-day Saints especially because later on I mean Nauvoo is going to be I mean Joseph Smith is later going to have a revelation that this is going to be the cornerstone of Zion right because mm-hmm. they were expelled from Missouri which was supposed to be their the main Zion where you know they're supposed to build the temple for the coming of the New Jerusalem and once they get expelled Nauvoo is really I mean even the the name it means beautiful place in Hebrew is that correct
1: Yeah that's what Joseph Smith said at Mount
0: Okay. So it's just fascinating to me that, I mean, Joseph Smith seems to be putting a lot of uh, importance and significance on Nauvoo. And politically, why was Nauvoo so important to the Latter-day Saints? Because it seems like they got a really unique charter from the from the state government. There's a lot going on with them. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you look Um, at the Latter-day Saint people at this time, because uh, Joseph Smith and the Mormons face accusations that uh, they're guilty of block voting, that essentially Joseph Smith tells church members who he's going to support in an election, and then everybody automatically supports that, that person. Now, Joseph Smith denies this. He says, no, we don't vote as a block." But in reality, they kind of do vote as a block. And Joseph might not say, you guys need to go out and vote for this candidate that I'm supporting. But by virtue of supporting someone, virtually all the Latter-day Saints in the area will vote for that same candidate. And so because of that, um, when they get to Nauvoo, they're really being courted by both political parties in Illinois, Uh, by the Whigs and the Democrats, who are all hoping to gain uh, the Mormon vote in upcoming elections, especially, you know, uh, gubernatorial elections, um, other, you know, local elections. And so one of the reasons why they're able to get this charter passed um, that grants them, you know, several uh, liberties, uh, liberties that aren't unheard of. There are other charters Uh, for cities in Illinois that have uh, the same kinds of things that are in the Nauvoo Charter. But what is uh, significant or what is unusual about the Nauvoo Charter is the combination of all these powers into one city. You don't really have another charter in Illinois that has the same, you know, all of these powers granted to the city. There might be, you know, one here for one city or one there for another city. But they're able to get this passed with uh, kind of these rights granted to them because the Whigs and the Democrats both want the Mormon vote. And uh, one figure who's kind of instrumental in getting the Navi Charter passed and in kind of working the political side of things is John C. Bennett, who will end up being you know one of the major villains in Joseph Smith's life. Um, in 1842, he'll break away from the church and cause a whole lot of problems for Joseph Smith. But in 1840, when John C. Bennett first becomes acquainted with Joseph Smith, he's kind of a rising star in the community. Um, He has connections uh, with the Illinois government because uh, he's been serving as uh, the quartermaster general of the Illinois militia. And so he's able to kind of play these political parties off of each other um, so that the Latter-day Saints are able to get this charter passed. Um, Now, The unfortunate thing is, is that in an election, you do have to choose one candidate over another. And so invariably, one political party is going to be very disappointed and very upset with the Latter-day Saint people if they don't support their candidate. And that's what you see happening um, in Illinois. You see uh, the Latter-day Saints uh, supporting you know, Various candidates, they'll support Democratic candidates, and the Whigs will get upset with them. They'll support Whig candidates. The Democrats will get upset with them. And so I, I think one of the things with Nauvoo is that you really kind of see the Latter-day Saints becoming a significant uh, political force in Illinois, Um In large part, you know, because of the virtue of their numbers, as I was mentioning, as they're getting more and more people converting to England or converting in England and then moving over to Nauvoo, the population of the Latter-day Saints grow. They become increasingly uh, important in numbers in Hancock County, Illinois. And so because of this, they become important politically uh, for both parties.
0: Wow. That's amazing stuff. And I mean, in Nauvoo, geographically, it's right along the Mississippi River, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. It's right up against the river.
0: That's awesome. So, I mean, even geographically, Nauvoo, as you're explaining politically, it's it's a powerhouse for the Mormons. They're getting a lot of the protections that they didn't necessarily get when they were in Missouri or in Ohio, but they're given this this really a fantastic charter from the state government, but even geographically they're right along a a major trade network within the United States. They're they're They have a lot of land. I mean, that's just up for the taking that they can buy and they bought it for fairly cheap, correct?
1: Yeah. uh, It was fairly cheap uh, for the time, um, but they bought quite a bit of it, uh, which is why they go into so much debt.
0: Oh, wow. Amazing stuff. So Now that you're kind of giving us this terrific backdrop of why this documents volume and why the city of Nauvoo is so significant within American history, especially within uh, the study of Mormonism... um, What about Nauvoo theologically? You know, within Mormon studies, Nauvoo is kind of like the single most important uh, section of uh, early Mormonism that people like to talk about is because a lot of historians say that this is when things really start to change and gear up for the church. Do you agree with that? And if so, why?
1: Yeah, I think there's some merit to that. Um, It's kind of an interesting... uh, An interesting subject to tackle, though, because one reason why Nauvoo is seen as so theologically important and, you know, so many theological developments is that we have uh, so many more accounts of discourses that Joseph Smith gave than we have, you know, prior to 1839. So when he's in Nauvoo... Um, You know, Joseph, he didn't like to write himself, so he hired clerks and scribes to kind of keep his journal, keep his personal record, keep a history of the church. And what you see in Nauvoo is, you know, some of these scribes like Willard Richards and William Clayton um, start to really record what Joseph Smith is saying in his discourses. You also have Wilford Woodruff. Um, who keeps just this fantastic journal. And whenever he hears Joseph Smith speak, he records in detail what Joseph Smith said. And you don't really have anyone prior to 1839 that is keeping such a good record of what Joseph Smith is saying when he's preaching to the saints. And so it's, a bit difficult to kind of study Joseph Smith's theology before Nauvoo because of that, because we just don't have as many discourses, you know, surviving accounts of discourses that he gave prior to Nauvoo. Um, because we have that in Nauvoo, uh, we can see a lot of these developments come out. You can kind of see Joseph Smith's theology, his ideas um, about who God is, about who. Uh, human beings are, you know, the nature of eternal progression, those those kinds of things. You can see the development of that in his thought um, in Nauvoo. And there are some, you know, very significant doctrines that come out of Nauvoo. One that we cover in Documents, Volume 7, um, is something that I think Latter-day Saints, you know, it, it's a key doctrine for Latter-day Saints today, and it's this notion of baptism for the dead of people being able to be baptized as proxies uh, for deceased ancestors um, who, you know, weren't around, you know, for Joseph Smith's restoration of the gospel. And this idea, this doctrine of baptism for the dead comes out in Nauvoo. Uh, Joseph Smith gives a sermon. In August of 1840 at the funeral of Seymour Brunson, who um, has been a member of the Nauvoo High Council. So uh, he's, he's a, he was a leader in the church where he first unveils this doctrine, this notion that the saints can be baptized on behalf of their deceased ancestors. And it's a doctrine that really just kind of catches fire among the saints. It's something that the Latter-day Saints believe um is a very pleasing doctrine, something that really resonates with them, that they can be the means of salvation for their relatives uh, who have gone on before, who didn't necessarily hear about the gospel uh, as preached by Joseph Smith. And so Joseph elaborates on it um, at the October 1840 General Conference of the Church. He writes a letter that we have in Documents, Volume 7, to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Where he talks about it. We have letters from uh, the late Kimball, who is the wife of Heber C. Kimball, one of the apostles serving in England, where she describes in great detail a discourse that Joseph gave on baptism for the dead. And again, this really becomes a key doctrine in this notion that Latter-day Saints can serve um, as saviors uh, for their deceased relatives. And so it's doctrines like that that are really kind of exciting to see emerge um, from this Nauvoo period. And some of this may just be, you know, Joseph Smith, prior to coming to Nauvoo, he spent six months in jail in Missouri. Um, he was arrested at the end of what's called the the Mormon War, uh, the conflict that Latter-day Saints had with their uh with the other Missouri citizens. So he's arrested on various charges. Um, he's in jail for about six months. I think he had a lot of time to kind of contemplate things there. Um, I think he kind of had a sense that he didn't know how much longer he was going to live after this time. Um, Cause he, that's kind of another thing that is always present in Nauvoo is this threat that the Missourians are somehow going to come get him, that they're going to extradite him back. Um, to, you know, stand trial on these charges that, you know, they're going to extradite them to stand trial on new charges. And so this threat that, you know, Missouri is kind of always lingering in the background and that Missourians are out to get them is kind of always present with Joseph. And so I think another reason why you kind of see more theological developments in Nauvoo perhaps is Joseph just thinking, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be living. Um, so I got to get a lot of this stuff out, uh, teach a lot of the Latter or teach the Latter-day Saints what the Lord has revealed to me, what's going on in, in my mind. Uh, but it really is interesting to see some of these developments.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. I could definitely see why baptism for the dead would be comforting to the saints, especially for their their loved ones that were deceased. I mean, because they're very millennialist, right? They're mm-hmm. very much thinking that Jesus Christ is coming back. They're going to, you know, they're going to create the, the millennium is being ushered in. They're going to create the new Jerusalem. So they're really just trying to wrap up everything for, to fulfill the end time prophecies. It, it, wouldn't you say that would be the case?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, they, They very much believed, uh, especially early on um, in 1831, they're commanded to go build the city of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. And they very much believe that they're going to build the city in Jackson County. They're going to build a temple there. And then Jesus Christ would return to the earth. And so for many of them, this isn't like this is going to happen in 100 years. This is like this is going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, And so they're very much thinking, you know, that Jesus Christ's second advent is is imminent. I I also think one, you know, another reason why this is comforting for them, or at least comforting for Joseph Smith, I think Joseph placed a lot of emphasis on family and familial relationships. And so I think he thought a lot about how do you keep your family bound together in the uh, eternities? Uh, part of that could have come because he lost his oldest brother um, at a relatively young age. Uh, And I think he was always, you know, kind of concerned about that, that his brother had died before Joseph was able to translate the book of Mormon and uh, preach the gospel. But he just, he, he seems very close to his family throughout his life and always kind of wanting to preserve those relationships. And so I think, you know, one reason why we see doctrines such as baptism for the dead, uh, couples being able to be sealed for eternity, is because Joseph Smith valued these family relationships so much. Wow.
0: Matt, that's so fascinating because during this time in American history, you're seeing, especially within American religion, a lot of these religions that are millennialists, just like the Mormons they're not placing that emphasis on the family, right? The mm-hmm. focus is all about Christ. The focus is all about individual salvation where Joseph Smith, especially with this introduction of baptism for the dead. I mean, he's trying to link the, these familial bonds together and you cannot, I mean, doesn't he say uh, something along the lines of like, we cannot be saved without our dead and they cannot be saved without us. Is it something along yeah. those lines?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, and this goes back to one of the very first things that he's told You know, back in 1823, uh, when he says that the angel Moroni appeared to him and told him about the gold plates from which he would translate the Book of Mormon, he has, you know, he says during this visit that Moroni is quoting to him uh, verses from Malachi, talking about the hearts of the children being turned to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. So it's something that's kind of present almost from the beginning of his prophetic calling. Um, this notion of family, of looking out for those who have gone before, looking out for those who who will come after. Um, but again, you kind of really see it come out prominently, I think, uh, in this Nauvoo period.
0: Awesome stuff. Honestly, I just don't understand why Hollywood has not picked up Joseph Smith. I mean, this—you this, just can't make this stuff up. Right. It's—it's just—it's fascinating. <laughs> so, <laughs> so speaking of that, and the Hollywood, the Hollywood esque part of this of this documents volume, um, Joseph Smith actually goes and meets Martin Van Buren, he actually goes to speak with the president of the United States. I mean, that takes guts and and takes a lot of gumption to have a delegation to go visit the President of the United States, to go visit Congress, and see if they can get redress from all the persecution that they suffered in Missouri. Can you tell us a little bit about why they did that and what is in this volumes document that's so significant about all those events?
1: Sure, yeah. So the the reason why they do it, this goes back to problems that they had in Missouri in 1833. So as I mentioned before, uh, they were told in an 1831 revelation to build the city of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. And they go and they they start doing this. And after a couple years of being there, um, Missourians who aren't members of the church feel threatened by the Latter-day Saints because they feel like there's too many of them moving into Jackson County, uh, that they're going to take over political power. They don't like um, the Latter-day Saints theology or doctrines. Um, They think Joseph Smith's a fraud, an imposter. He's just trying to pull one over on on people. Uh, There's a whole host of reasons, Um, but essentially they're kicked out of Jackson County in 1833. And after that happens, uh, Joseph dictates a revelation. Um, He tells Edward Partridge, who's the bishop in Missouri, uh, kind of the main church leader there, Um, he tells him in December of 1833 that, Uh, One thing that he just can't understand is why the Lord would let the Latter-day Saints or let church members be kicked out of Missouri and what the Lord was going to do so that they could regain their lands. And so uh, about a week after he writes this letter to Edward Partridge and says, I've been wondering about these things the Lord's not telling me, uh, he dictates a revelation that answers those very two questions. And one of the things that um, this revelation talks about is about how the saints need Um, to seek redress uh, through all legal means um, to try to get their property back in Jackson County. So it tells them that they need to petition local governments. They need to petition the state government of Missouri. If the state won't do anything, then they need to petition the president of the United States. And if the president still won't do anything, then they've done all that they could, and and the Lord would unleash his wrath uh, on the people. So that's what they're told to do after um, they've been kicked out of Jackson County. So when they're expelled from the entire state of Missouri uh, in 1838 and 1839, Joseph Smith follows this same pattern, what he uh, feels the Lord has told him to do back in 1833. And so they initially look at uh, the state of Missouri for redress, but they don't believe they're going to get anywhere there, uh, in part because the governor's issued the extermination order, which essentially told the state militia that the Mormons either needed to be expelled or exterminated. Um, So they don't really feel like they can go back into the state to try to get redress because of this. And so Joseph then turns to the federal government, um, and in eighteen, the fall of eighteen thirty-nine, he and Sidney Rigdon and Elias Higby um, and a few others travel back to Washington D.C., and they're carrying with them um, what is known as a memorial, where they detail all of the problems that they've had with the state of Missouri, all the injustices they faced, all the persecutions they faced, the violence, uh, even sexual violence. You know, they claim that there are many. Latter-day Saint women who were raped um, in Missouri, the loss of their property, the amount of the property, and they carry this back to Washington, D.C. to try to see if the federal government will help them get redress um, for all of these things. And they initially start off by going to see President Martin Van Buren, Um, and, you know, it, it. It is kind of unusual to go petition a president, but it wasn't as unusual in that time. Uh, The president did have kind of, you know, open office hours, as it were, where people could go and try to seek an audience with the president to talk to him about uh, various things. And so they had letters of introduction um, from prominent Illinois politicians that they could present to Martin Van Buren to let him know who they were. Uh, they're able to get an audience with him. We're not exactly sure what they wanted Martin Van Buren to do, uh, but one thing that Spencer McBride, one of our historians, he, he's written about this before. He, he's uh, the one who in our volume documents, volume seven, um, covered the documents dealing with uh, redress from the federal government. One of the things that that he thinks is that uh What Joseph Smith hoped to do was to get Martin Van Buren to actually uh, provide some support for the Latter-day Saints Memorial um, in his State of the Union address to Congress, um, which he would give to them um, in January. Um, But when he talks to Martin Van Buren, Van Buren essentially tells him, look, I can't do anything for you um, because if I support you in this, I'm going to lose the whole state of Missouri in the 1840 election. So I'm not going to do anything uh, for that. So then they uh, go and uh, submit their memorial uh, to the Senate committee on the uh, judiciary. Um, who considers their memorial. They hold some hearings, uh, kind of preliminary hearings on it, trying to decide whether the Senate actually had jurisdiction over this. And they ultimately decide that, no, the federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction over this. The the Latter-day Saints, if they want redress, they need to get that through the state of Missouri. The the federal government really doesn't have any uh, authority over it. And this, of course, doesn't sit well with Joseph because he's basically saying, you know, this is insulting to us because we've already tried to get redress from the state of Missouri and we can't do it. And so he, he feels very strongly after this that even with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that the state of politics in the United States at the time uh, does not protect religious minorities and their religious beliefs. And so in 1844, when Joseph Smith decides to run for president, Uh, One of the prominent uh, uh, positions that he takes in his platform is that he will support the rights of all religious minorities, not just Mormons, um, but any religious minority, that he will work hard to protect their rights because he felt so strongly that the federal government hadn't done that for the Latter-day Saints um, after their expulsion from Missouri
0: wow so this visit to Washington dc was really influential on Joseph Smith from here on out especially with his run for the presidency like you were saying and just a lot of other ways on how he views the government and how he's going to run the church with regards to that feud between the federal government and what he feels his church needs needs to get yeah
1: definitely and you know he doesn't This isn't just kind of a a one-off thing. Uh, The Latter-day Saints continued to petition for redress, uh, even in the years after 1840. Um, So it is something, I mean, I I don't think you can underestimate um, the influence that the Missouri period and the expulsion from Missouri had on the Latter-day Saints and on Joseph Smith. It was a really traumatic time for them, a really traumatic event. Um, It colored, like you said, their views of the federal government. Um, It kind of colored how they perceived those outside of the church. Um, It kind of led to them kind of having this notion that we are a persecuted people and that we're not going to be able to practice our religion as we would like to practice it uh, because of what had happened in Missouri. So it, it really is a very influential thing. Um, on the church and on Joseph Smith.
0: Yeah. What I'm fascinated by is everything you're talking about, you really see that within this documents volume, it's a really good case study to see the tensions between American federalism, between states' rights, federal rights, and where do religious minorities fit within this feud. I mean, because we're kind of gearing up towards the Civil War, right, with slavery and states' rights issues kind of gearing towards ahead. And this is Joseph Smith is smack dab in the middle of this, and you see that his priorities and what they want to do is kind of colliding with the the United States in general. And the United States is still trying to figure out who we are as a nation and what you know what they're gonna do. It's it's fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, it it really is. And that's you know, one one reason why I said we don't really know what he intended or what he wanted President Van Buren to do. Um, one of the reasons why we think that is because, I mean, he knew Van Buren very much believed in states' rights. And so, in approaching Van Buren, you know, you would think, well, there's no way that Van Buren's going to support you in this because he, you know, doesn't want to interfere with what's going on in the state of Missouri at the time uh, because he is such a strong states' rights uh, proponent. But I do think that this, you know, as, as I mentioned previously in this, I do think this is one reason why it's fascinating to study uh, the Mormons during this time period. Um, it's just because you do have this clash between, you know, what what is the proper role of the federal government versus the role of the states? And as you said, this is going to get a lot more play um, in the late 1840s, the 1850s leading up to the Civil War. But you kind of see a taste of it, uh, especially for minority groups, uh, when you look at the Latter-day Saint experience in Missouri and in Joseph Smith's attempts to get redress from the federal government. So I I really think it's a fascinating thing for American historians uh, to study um, who deal with these kinds of issues.
0: Wow, yeah, that's terrific stuff. I mean, you guys are so detailed with it. I even love the footnotes where there's this one area within the volume. You're even... This is how detailed they are, just so the audience can understand. When you say that you know Joseph Smith is going to meet Vardan Van Buren in the footnotes, you are actually saying like which parlor they would have met in most likely, and you're showing books as <laughs> to you know the citations. I mean, it's just it's just amazing stuff. The detail that you all went into to kind of not only set the state you know the, the the historical stage and background for this, but to just get into the nitty gritty of how things actually functioned and worked, not only for Joseph Smith, but within America and American citizenry in general, going to meet the president. What was it like? Where do they actually do it? It's just, it's great stuff, Matt. I mean, I just can't praise it enough.
1: Well, that's that's what makes working on these volumes so much fun. You know, as, as historians, we love to get into the nitty gritty and get into those details. And, you know, it's just uh, so exhilarating and exciting when you have something in a letter that you're trying to figure out and you finally find the source or something that explains it. I'm, you know, that's for me, that's one reason why I love being a historian. That's something that, uh, just gives me a whole lot of, uh, satisfaction to be able to to uncover some of those things.
0: Brilliant. Awesome so uh, we could be talking about these issues <laughs> throughout the whole interview because they're just it's just really great stuff but another I want I want to talk about another topic that this volumes document goes into a, a lot of detail and it's with the the missionary work that's being done with the Mormon Church especially in England what's in this uh, documents volume that really is significant that, that is showing how foreign missionary work was conducted within the church and what little nuggets can you tell us that we can look forward to within this volume?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's a couple things that I think are, are really interesting with this. Um, You know, this, this topic of the 12 apostles going over to England in 1840 and 1841 and preaching the gospel and all these converts they get um, it's been explored, you know, quite a bit by historians prior to this time. Uh, there's the book uh, that uh, Jim Allen, Dave Whitaker, and Ron Esplin wrote, "Men with a Mission," that covered this this time period, and they they use a lot of the sources that we have published in Documents Volume Seven. Um, so in that way, there's not a lot um, w- with these documents that historians haven't already known about, but there's still some some things that I think are, are very interesting about it. There's a very lengthy letter. Um, in this volume that Heber C. Kimball, one of the Twelve Apostles, writes to Joseph Smith um, that talks about kind of his journey from Nauvoo to England. He's sick much of the time. Uh, In fact, there's a a period where he thinks he's going to die, and everyone around him thought that he was going to die. Um, He was suffering from malaria, which a lot of the saints suffered from because, again, Nauvoo is a swamp. And so there's mosquitoes that carry malaria. And a lot of the saints are infected with that. Um, But this letter is just it's so interesting to read about kind of Heber C. Kimball's travails as he's traveling over to England. Um, But also this letter, as well as another one that Brigham Young and Willard Richards writes to Joseph Smith, again, uh, two of the apostles, The other thing I love about them is that they're very, uh, they they write a lot about the poverty that they are encountering in England, kind of their reaction to being, um, in this land. They've never been, you know, to England before, so they're encountering this environment for the first time. Uh, they're talking about how dirty it is, um, about how there's just all these people who are out of work. There's social issues that they comment on. And I think those points of view are really uh, very interesting to kind of see how, you know, these American missionaries coming from these rural areas, what their reaction is when they encounter this urban uh, environment in England, you know, the factories, the Industrial Revolution, you know, kind of the, the Oliver Twist things that we would think about um, that, you know, Charles Dickens writes about. And so I think that's that's very interesting. But for me, um, the document in Volume 7 that I think is the most interesting touching on the mission of the Twelve Apostles at this time is one that's not actually written by them or about what they're doing in England. And instead, it's this very brief pay order that Joseph Smith writes uh, for Mrs. Young, his, uh who the pay order, uh, is about. And we think that Mrs. Young is Marianne Angel Young, who's the wife of Brigham Young, who again is one of the apostles serving in England. And it's very brief. Um, it's made out to Newell K. Whitney, who is one of the church's bishops who operated a store in Nauvoo. And it just essentially says, Bishop Whitney, um, please let Mrs. Young have whatever she wants out of your store. It would be pleasing uh, to God for you to do this. Now, that doesn't sound like a very exciting document, Um, but one of the things that I think is very interesting about this, and it's a part of the story of the Apostles' mission to England that doesn't always get talked about, and that is the sacrifices that their families made in Nauvoo while they were overseas preaching the gospel. And so when you delve into this a little more deeply about the situation of Marianne Angel Young or Phoebe Woodruff, um, the wife of Wilford Woodruff, another one of the apostles, or the late Kimball, Heber C. Kimball's wife, uh, or uh, Leonora Taylor, the wife of John Taylor, another apostle. When you delve into their situation, um, it's just incredible what they were going through in Nauvoo while their husbands were preaching. So like I was mentioning, in 1840, Nauvoo is still pretty much a swamp. There's a lot of disease going on um, because of malaria outbreaks. And you have these apostles' wives. They've lost everything in Missouri, so they don't have any money. Um, their husbands kind of tried to set them up with some shelter uh, before they left to go to England. But a lot of the shelters really inadequate. Um, Joseph Smith tells uh, Phoebe Woodruff and Marianne Angel Young that if they want, uh, the church will build them a house in Nauvoo. They both say, yes, that would be great. Phoebe Woodruff finds when she moves into the house that was built that it was really not an adequate shelter. Um the roof had holes in it, there was no door on the house. So she's there in November and December of 1839, and she says there was as much snow in the house as there was outside of it. So it was a, really a, an inadequate shelter. And then looking at Marianne, Marianne Angel Young, uh, she just had she was suffering with a great deal of poverty at the time. She was looking after six children. Um, She'd just given birth about 10 days before Brigham Young left for England. So she has a newborn baby that she's looking after as well as her other children. And she just she has no money. Uh, She has very little food. Um, And so this pay order that Joseph Smith writes, she takes it to Newell K. Whitney and he writes on the back of it the goods that she took and all that she took from the store was some nutmeg, a shawl and some shoes for a man. Uh, the price I think was $3 and 50 cents was, was how much these, these goods were worth. And so this pay order for me is just this window into the poverty and suffering that the wives of these 12 apostles, their families experienced while they were overseas converting all these people that would kind of become, you know, the backbone, the strength of the church in Nauvoo. And it's just, I, I think you know, when you're talking about that, you have to talk about the sacrifices of these women and what they were experiencing. And again, I think this brief pay order kind of gives us a glimpse into that world. And so that's something that I think uh, comes out of volume seven about the apostles mission that maybe historians haven't um, explored in as much detail as the actual mission itself.
0: Wow, that's amazing yeah to see the sacrifices that they were doing it really shows how much they how much they believed in the the mission of the of the church and the sacrifices that they had to do for it are just is what you're saying it just sounds phenomenal yeah
1: Yeah, it really does
0: interesting so speaking of sacrifices you know the uh the mormons they had they, they they built a temple in Kirtland, Ohio, mm-hmm. right? And that took a lot of sacrifice. I know the families and the they had to they had to not only dedicate their time but their money, their goods to make this temple uh to support it, to 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 allow it to be built. So Joseph Smith when they moved to Nauvoo, I we see in this uh this volume that Joseph Smith has a revelation that another temple is to be built in Nauvoo. Could you elaborate on that a little bit and why it's so imperative for Joseph Smith to build another temple in Nauvoo? Sure, yeah.
1: So um, there's something with uh, the temple with the Latter-day Saints that they believed that whenever a location was designated as a gathering place for them, a place where, you know, the church was supposed to come together and to gather, that they needed to build a temple there. So uh, they're commanded to build a temple Um you know, in Jackson County, Missouri, when they're building the city of Zion, because that was supposed to be the gathering place for, for the elect. That one never gets built because they get kicked out of Jackson County. They're commanded to build one in Kirtland, um, which is designated as um, kind of a temporary gathering place for saints to come to until the uh, city of Zion gets completed. And they're able to complete that one in Kirtland. When they go to far west Missouri, Um, they're also commanded to build a temple there, uh, that they're supposed to, again, gather to that area and build a temple. They're not able to get that one done because they're kicked out of Missouri. So when they get to Nauvoo, um, it's, it really is interesting because again, as they're trying to establish all the infrastructure in the area, uh, they're trying to get Nauvoo as a place where people can actually live without, you know, dying from malaria, um, Joseph Smith really kind of sees, I think, a vision for what Nauvoo could become. Um, And he tells the saints in July of 1840 that Nauvoo will become the greatest city in the world, which at the time, if you would look at what was going on in Nauvoo, you'd just laugh at that and say, yeah, you know, instead of being the greatest city, this is kind of a cesspool of disease and a lot of people are dying from it. So how how are you going to make it so great? Um, but part of his vision for that was that the saints would build a temple there. And so he, I think, is early. We have uh, indications that as early as April of 1840, um, he's already planning for the saints to build a temple in Nauvoo. And then in January of 1841, he dictates a revelation. And in that revelation, it says that the saints do indeed need to build a temple in Nauvoo. And it says that this uh, needs to be built because, um, for one thing, it's the place where the Lord could reveal uh, the fullness um, of his priesthood. So a place where, you know, more ordinances or theological developments could happen. But it also says that the saints need to build a temple because that was the proper place for baptisms for the dead to take place. And uh, the revelation says that until the temple is completed, it's okay for the saints to be baptized for their dead in the Mississippi River, but that once the temple is completed, that ordinance belongs to the temple. It needs to be performed there. And so that's another reason why Joseph feels that it's so necessary to build a temple in Nauvoo uh, because of that direction um, given in that January 1841 revelation.
0: Wow, that's fascinating, Matt. Because what what I find interesting about this this volume and just Nauvoo in general, I mean, when they build the temple in Ohio, it's important, right? It's a it's a holy sanctuary, but they're also conducting business and things of that nature within the temple, but. What you're—it sounds like what you're saying—is Joseph Smith is envisioning the temple to become something. It's it's almost becoming holier, where they're going to do new ordinances there, and what maybe other religions might call sacraments or rites. But he's going to be doing—they're going to be doing ordinances there that are not not only important for the church, but like salvation ordinances that are important for the individuals. And for this millennial idea of what is to come about in the very near future, it's almost like his, his, uh, his temple theology is, I, I don't know if it's derogatory to say evolving, but it's becoming much more um, revealed in his mind as how important this actually is and why Nauvoo is such a central focal point within his mind. Am I off thinking along those lines?
1: No, I think you know Joseph Smith's ideas about temples, about the purpose of temples, definitely develop uh, over time. Um, with Kirtland, you know there were some of those uh, salvific rites that were performed in the Kirtland Temple. There were washings and anointings that were performed there, but to a large degree, the Kirtland Temple was just used as kind of a large meeting house for the saints, where they could gather and and hear instruction from their church leaders. And it wasn't really uh, seen so much as a place where kind of these holy rites would take place. Um, But again, you know, with Nauvoo, I think this is one of the theological developments that you see in Joseph Smith's mind, that he starts to see the temple um, as a place where some of these salvific ordinances, rites uh, needed to take place, that they were too sacred to be done just in any ordinary building or uh, outpost. Now, some of these he does reveal uh, to Latter-day Saints before the temple is completed in kind of an an upper room of his uh, red brick store. Uh, But when the temple is completed in Nauvoo, it's not completed until after Joseph Smith is killed. But once it is completed, then these ordinances, these rites are performed in the temple itself. And so I think you see Joseph Smith's ideas about temples develop into what their purpose should be, um, how they should be used, how the Lord views them. Um, kind of all of these things come together uh, a little bit more strongly in Nauvoo. Uh, and I, again, I think it's part of this, what we've already talked about, these theological developments that you see in, in Nauvoo definitely is understanding of the temple.
0: Well, wow, it's fascinating. I mean, just objectively looking at Joseph Smith within American history, he is an American religious entrepreneur. The fact that this is even happening within early America is just unbelievable. And he's successful at bringing this to pass. It's it's quite it's quite a marvel.
1: Yeah, he's he's quite a quite a figure. I think um, <laughs> he thought a lot about a lot of different things. I think he sought for truth wherever it could be found. And so I think, you know, he wasn't someone who was afraid to, uh, you know, take influences or take ideas um, from other religious traditions or other organizations that that he saw. He really was devoted to thinking that there was truth in everything. Um, But that what was important with the church that he founds the restoration of the gospel, what's important with that is that it, Kind of brings all of these truths together into one religious organization.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of American restorationists during this time, right, that are trying to bring about or try to bring back the primitivist Christian church, where Joseph Smith, he's literally saying, no, we need to restore all things. I mean, and he's bringing it all together. It's, wow, Matt, it's fascinating. So, if you don't mind me asking, I want to talk a little bit about you because you sound like a really interesting historian and in character. What brought you to the Joseph Smith Papers project? because it's it's quite obvious that you've dedicated your life to this. You know a ton, you're you're very eloquent in talking about it, and it's you're just painting this really uh, very picturesque picture of what's actually going on. So how did you get involved with it? What's it like working on the Joseph Smith Papers?
1: Yeah, those are, those are all great questions. Um, so I kind of have history in my blood. Um, my father has a Ph.D. in history. Um, he was in the uh, uh, Latter-day Saint Church's educational system for his entire career, uh, kind of educating uh, youth in what we call seminaries and, and institutes. Um, but he was always fascinated with Joseph Smith. Um, He studied a lot about the Nauvoo period and about Joseph Smith. Um, I went to my first Mormon History Association meeting when I was 15. Um, They had meetings over in England uh, and I went to them with my parents. I think I was more fascinated at the time with the record stores in England because I was very much into uh, the cure and Depeche Mode and those groups at the time. but that the fact my mom also has a, a master's degree in history uh, has written you know several things about uh, Utah history. Um, but I think those things were just kind of always around me growing up, and so history felt just kind of a, a natural thing for me. Um, so after I got my PhD, um, as you mentioned in, in your introduction um, to me, I, I did work in Montana for about eight and a half years as a historical consultant. Um, and I didn't do a whole lot with Mormon history at that time. Um, I've always been interested in Mormon history. Uh, my PhD dissertation was about the Utah Idaho Sugar Company, um, which was a beet sugar company that the church had a, a large interest in. Um, and so I've always, you know, been fascinated by Mormon history, but I wasn't really doing anything with it. But you know, when I was working on my PhD, working on my master's degree, I always kind of had this notion that it'd be a lot of fun uh, to work for the church history department. So uh, back in 2010, um, the project was kind of undergoing a a bit of a transformation. Uh, So prior to that time, kind of the working model for the Joseph Smith Papers had been that they would um, kind of hire people who were in academic institutions to work on the Joseph Smith papers as some of their research projects. Um, and so there were several people at Brigham Young University um, at other institutions, professors there who were working on the Joseph Smith papers. Um, but they, I think, decided that in order to actually produce the volumes in the time frame in which we were supposed to produce them, that they needed more people in-house Um, within the uh, LDS Church's uh, history department. And so in 2010, they decided to hire four Ph.D. historians uh, to work um, in the church history department, specifically on the Joseph Smith papers. And so they had a job announcement uh, for it. Um, I saw it. I was interested in it. I applied for it. Um, kind of had a, a hard decision because I really enjoyed what I was doing in Montana, but ultimately decided that um, this is where I wanted to be. So I came to the, to the project in 2010. Um, and, you know, it really has been a fascinating experience. And I'll be the first to admit that prior to coming to the project, I was not by any means an expert in Joseph Smith or in early church history. Most of what I had studied with the Latter-day Saint movement was 20th century topics. Um, and so I still, you know, here we are almost nine years later and uh, all of my colleagues know, I, I still feel like they know a whole lot more about Joseph Smith and about these early time periods than, than I do. I, I always learn a lot from them um, as I work on these volumes. But it's just been fascinating for me just to really delve into Joseph Smith as a person, to read, you know, letters that he wrote, uh, to read his journals, uh, to kind of gain insights into him as an individual. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, every day there's always something interesting uh, to work on uh, and to explore. So it, it's, it's just been a, a wonderful project for me to work on and, and something that I really enjoy.
0: That's great. You definitely have a sweet gig. I gotta say, it sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> so, how
0: is it funded? I mean, this is a massive undertaking. If you don't mind me asking, how does? Because this is published by by an arm of the of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, correct? It's the Church Historians Press, and and this is yeah. and and this isn't you know this isn't apologetic work. I mean, this is hard hitting historical work, like you said. You have top caliber historians working on it. I mean, this is a major papers project. How is this even being funded by a church?
1: Yeah. You know, we really uh, could not do the Joseph Smith papers project, um, especially with the resources we have. um, If it weren't for the Larry H. Miller and Gail Miller uh, philanthropic foundation. Um, So, Larry H. Miller uh, was a car dealer um, in Utah. Uh, He's also an owner of the Utah Jazz basketball team, NBA team. Um, And he became interested in this project early on um, when they were talking about doing this. I I should say, too, just to kind of back up uh, with this, this project has its roots in a lot of the work that a historian named Dean Jesse did Uh, for the LDS Church Historical Department beginning in the 1960s, where he was trying to bring Joseph Smith's papers together and publish them. But it it, it was a massive undertaking for one person to do. And so back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, they decided that they really wanted to do this project more on the scope of the Founding Fathers projects that, that I had talked about. And so in the midst of them talking about how do we do this, you know, where is this going to be housed? um, It was originally housed at Brigham Young University um, in the uh, Joseph Fielding Smith Institute of Church History there. Um, But kind of early on, Larry Miller became involved with it and decided that he wanted to help uh, fund this project. He felt very strongly um, about Uh, Joseph Smith and about the need to get these papers out to the scholarly world. And so um, he provided uh, a sizable donation um, to the project. Uh, The project was then moved up from Brigham Young University um, to the Church History Department, which is in Salt Lake City, uh, Utah. And, um, you know, ever since we've been up here, uh, Larry himself died in 2009, but his wife, Gail, um, has been just as supportive of, of the project as Larry is. And so they provide still about, uh, half of the funding for the project. Um, and the church provides the other, the other half for it. But it's really because of the millers' generosity and their willingness to fund this that we're able to have a top notch staff. Um, the website that we have is, I think, regarded as one of the top documentary editing websites in the United States. And it's because of the Millers and, the, and their generosity that we've been able to do all of this.
0: That's terrific. Yeah, I got to say that the, the website is phenomenal. I mean, it's, just, and it's so easy to use. It, it, for researchers, it's just fantastic. It's, it's, a, it's definitely an asset that more historians and researchers should, should uh, make use of.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. We have uh, a lot of great people who have worked on our website. Uh, We, we understand, you know, when our volumes are published, they're not cheap. Um, You know, they run, you know, usually around 54 or $55. Some of them are more expensive than that. Um, But we want to make these documents accessible um, to as many people as possible. And so that's why we put all of the documents on the website, because the website's for free, you can go there. You can look at the actual images of the documents, compare our transcriptions with uh, what the image is, and uh, it, it really is a wonderful resource, I think, for historians. Yeah, has
0: there? I mean, let's be honest, and you're you're a humble guy, but I'll 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 be bold with this. I mean, is there a, a papers project that even that even compares to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, especially with? I mean, you know, in modern times we have the internet, we have the websites that you can do, but. Everything that you all are providing is just, it's so massive. Has there ever been an undertaking this big before?
1: Uh, yeah, there, there definitely has. You know, as I mentioned, some of these founding father projects, you know, the papers are enormous, uh, just a- an immense number of papers that, that they're trying to publish. I think the thing that's unique about the Joseph Smith papers, though, is that we are able to have so many historians working on the project. We have about 15 full-time historians working on it. And then uh, we also have um, at least that many production editors um, who are working on the project. They, uh, they are with the church historians press who, as you mentioned, published them. And so just to have that number of people working on this project is almost unheard of with documentary editing projects, a large part because most of, most documentary editing projects are relying on grant money um, in order to fund them. And so again, because we have uh, the Miller family who's so willing to support this, it's enabled us to be able to bring on just a vast amount of resources to be able to work on this.
0: Wonderful. So this is a hypothetical question for people who are in Mormon history. I think they would appreciate this. What do you th- so? Leonard Arrington was the, what people often say he was the first professional historian. We all know he got his PhD in economics, but he was hired. He was the first historian hired by the church that had a PhD in a social sciences field, and he really does a a lot of great work and a lot of hard hitting history. Do you th- what do you think Leonard Arrington would think about the Joseph Smith papers? Because he didn't live to see it,
1: right? I think he'd love it. <laughs> I, know, I think it's, you know, when when he became church historian um, back in the early 1970s, uh, one of the things that I think he really wanted to do was to make the church's history uh, more accessible to scholars and to Latter-day Saints as well. Um, and so he had, you know, all kinds of projects in mind. He you know, wanted to do uh, kind of a 15-volume history of the church where he'd have different scholars write about different eras uh, in the church. It didn't quite pan out that um, all of these volumes were published, but I think he was always looking for ways to get our history out there. Um, And not only that, but to do really solid, good, History that would be acceptable to non Mormon scholars, and I think that's something that we really key in to with the Joseph Smith papers. Um, even though you know we're, we're housed within the church history department, we feel very strongly, and our church leaders support us in this, that we need to be transparent with the history, that we need to get these documents out there. That yes, there are controversial. Uh, issues with Joseph Smith, with the church's past, Um, but the best thing that we can do is to get the information out there uh, for people to see so that we can have a better understanding of these issues. And so we have worked really hard to make sure that these volumes and that the project is uh, a project that all scholars can trust um that they don't think that we're just writing apologetics here um that we're just trying to boost up joseph smith as a prophet but that we're doing good legitimate history and i think this has been borne out um we're we are certified um we've received a certification from the national historical publications and records commission uh, which means that they've looked at the project that they support it as uh, a real scholarly endeavor Um, I've yet to see a review of one of our volumes in any scholarly journal, um, that's, uh, negative. I mean, certainly there are things that, that that we can improve that people point out. Um, but I think, you know, our efforts to really make this project accessible to scholars, meaningful to scholars and something that, um, really can stand up to historical scrutiny, uh, We've worked really hard with it, and I think we've been, been able to accomplish that.
0: Awesome. So I don't mean to keep me, Matt, but it's just so interesting. So what can we expect more from you and uh, from the Joseph Smith Papers in the near future? Do you guys have anything kind of coming up that we can look forward to seeing out there and purchasing?
1: Yeah, we do. So uh, we publish two volumes a year, um, which is kind of an ambitious publication <laughs> schedule, but so far <laughs> we've been able to do it. Uh, For the most part and so in May documents volume 8 will be released Which picks up where documents volume 7 leaves off. It covers February of 1841 through November of 1841 And then in the fall documents volume 9 will be published which covers December of 1841 uh, through April of 1842 so those are our next two volumes that will be published this year And then we'll just keep going. There's going to be about 15 volumes published in our documents series. Um, And so we have the remaining volumes uh, in that series that will be coming out. And then we also have another volume um, that we're starting to work on, which is the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. It will be part of our Revelations and Translations series, and it will be published sometime uh, in the next three three or four years as well. So wow. there's there's a lot on the horizon.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So when all this wraps up and Joseph Smith the Joseph Smith Papers project is completed, what do you think the chances are for us to see a Brigham Young's paper project? I mean, <laughs> now <laughs> do you think that's even possible? Because I can just see people with who are really fascinated with nineteenth century American history, especially American religious history, that if they love the Joseph Smith papers, I I can only fathom what would be what 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 sweet nuggets they would find within Brigham Young's papers. I mean, and I'm sure it's massive. Do you think that's even a possibility?
1: You know, I, I don't know that we'll ever see um, – I, I don't know that we'll ever undertake a comprehensive Brigham Young papers project like we've done with the Joseph Smith papers just because uh, Brigham's documentary output is massive and it would take decades uh, to publish all of his papers. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's likely that uh, we'll publish a subset of his papers, um, you know, maybe looking at some of his correspondence with Latter day Saints, uh, maybe some of his work as, you know, the territorial governor of Utah um, or as an Indian agent in Utah, some of those things. So I think there are, you know, certain topical areas in Brigham Young's life where we'll uh, probably try to publish some of his papers. But I, again, I'm not sure that we'll ever do. You know, a, a comprehensive Brigham Young's uh, Brigham Young papers.
0: Okay, well, hey, that's still something great to look forward to. So, hopefully, that'll happen. <laughs> well, Matt, I just can't tell you, I can't thank you enough. I've I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's just a great way to start off the special series on Mormonism for the New Books Network is to just talk about this foundational project, the Joseph Smith papers, and to have the managing historian to talk to us about this project is just. It's really special. I just want to say thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, If you, I'm, I'm talking with uh, Matthew C. Godfrey. He received his PhD from uh, Washington State University. We're talking about the Joseph Smith Papers, Volume 7. It's the document series and uh, a lot of great editors. You're the editor. We have Spencer W. McBride, Alex D. Smith, and Christopher James Blythe. You all did a fantastic job. I will have to say I have nothing but praiseworthy things to say about this volume and I have nothing but praiseworthy things to say about you. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Daniel. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Thanks. All right. Take care.